today's scripture reading is taken from the books of Zechariah as well as from the Gospel of John. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Reading from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Skipping on to chapter 13, verse 1, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. We now skip forward to John chapter 19, verse 28. John chapter 19, verses 28 to 37. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So Sam, for reading God's word to us. Let's go to God in prayer. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you that you can come and remember the death of your son. Father, we pray that as we come around your word, we pray for clarity, we pray for understanding. Father, we pray that we would behold Christ, uh, Him crucified. We pray that we would turn our hearts to Him, uh, turn us away from ourselves and turn us to Him in faith, in love, and in your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. began as the victim walked towards his death. He was forced to bear the burden of the horizontal cross beams. The Roman soldiers led the victim on a roundabout march to prolong the agony as he walked slowly to the place of his execution. The vertical beam of the cross was already there, fastened upright in the ground. When the victim got there, he was stripped naked. His 
arms were stretched out and either tied or nailed to the horizontal beams that he was carrying. He was then hoisted up together with the victims and fixed to the vertical beams. The victim's feet were either tied or nailed to the uprights. The victim would hang naked and exposed. And in order to breathe, he had to push himself up with his legs and pull with his arms. You know, this would trigger tremendous muscle spasms and cause unimaginable pain. You know, the word excruciating literally means out of crucifying. Excruciating. Death on the cross was horrifying, shameful, and slow. And this was the point. Crucifixion was intentionally gruesome and humiliating. The Romans used it to strike fear into people. The victim was made an example of, physically displayed naked on a cross for all to see. Victims would take hours or even days before they died. Now, crucifixion was such a terrible thing that no Roman citizen could be crucified without the emperor's express approval. Crucifixion was a form of execution reserved for the worst of criminals, the scum of society. Roman politician Cicero, he, he talked about crucifixion in this way. It was a most cruel and terrible penalty, incapable of description by any other word, for there is none fit to describe it. Jewish historian Josephus, who lived around the time of Jesus, he said the cross was the most wretched of deaths. The point of Good Friday is to remember the death of Jesus on the cross. You know, but given that the cross was such a, a terrible tool of torture and death, why would we want to remember a crucifixion that happened more than 2,000 years ago? And why do we want to remember the death of a man who hung naked on a cross suffered to his last breath. What does the death of this man, Jesus, on the cross have to do with us? Jesus is the sacrifice lifted up. The Apostle John was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was an eyewitness of Jesus' life as well as his death. And he says so in uh, verse 35 of the text that Sam read for us. He who saw it has borne witness. He is that eyewitness. John saw everything that happened and he knew that Jesus was no ordinary man, just as his death was no ordinary death. It was special because of who Jesus is. It was special because of what Jesus had come to do. Jesus is fully God, fully man. Yet he laid his glory aside, almost like taking off his robes of splendor, he laid them aside, and he took on flesh. The eternal word of God come in human form. And he came to live among us as an ordinary man. Not even a king, but a son. And Jesus identifies with us in our weakness in order to save us. Now, why do we need saving? Why do we need saving? The Bible says we've all turned away from God, every single one of us. And some of us have turned away from God by living for ourselves. You know, life is about maximizing my comfort, my 
insecurities, my happiness, my desires, my ambitions. No, if, we, if we think about God at all, He's simply there to give us what we want. Right? We, we live for ourselves. Life is just about us. And some, of, some others of us have turned away from God by actually trying to be religious, by trying to be good people. No, we think we're pretty good people. As, you know, we're not as bad as the person next to us. And we feel quite confident about ourselves. Things are going well. Life is good. And maybe we think that God may be pleased with us because we are such good people. Or maybe we even think that I can be good without God. Life is good without God. So whether we've lived for ourselves and, and sort of pursued life for ourselves, or we've tried to be good without God, now the Bible says we've all turned away in these various ways. And, and this turning away from God, the Bible calls it sin. Sin is not just doing bad things. Sin is fundamentally a failure to worship God as God. He made us to know Him. God made us to love Him, to enjoy Him, to trust Him, to, to find our real life in Him. But by turning away from Him, we've not loved Him with all our hearts, all our souls, and all of our minds. And, and God, who is perfectly holy and righteous, he, he cannot let sin go unpunished. And I think we, we understand this, because we, we understand righteousness and justice. You know, we get upset, right, when uh, we, we encounter overindulgent parents who fail to discipline their children and spoil their children. I mean, we get upset because we feel that some wrong has been done. We get upset by injustice in society. You know, I get upset even when people cut in front of me when, when I'm driving or when they cut in front of me in the queue. You know, I have a heightened sense of righteousness when that happens. You know, we get concepts of justice and righteousness. And I think it's because God made us that way. You know, he made us in His image and, and we understand what it means to be righteous and just. We understand that wrongs should go unpunished and rights should be rewarded. If God were to ignore sin, He would no longer be good. And this is precisely bad news for us because we have all sinned against God. We've all turned away from Him. And in order for God to be just, in order for God to be good, we deserve His judgment. And Scripture says judgment means death, hell. Because sin separates us from God, who is the only source of life. And even though we've turned away from God, God did not turn away from us. He identifies with us, even in our guilt and shame. No, Jesus did not die a dignified death. He, he didn't die a, a nice, quiet death lying on a hospital bed somewhere. Jesus was crucified between two criminals, one on either side, as John tells us in verse 18. Uh, this brings to mind the passage in Isaiah 53. He was numbered with the transgressors. He died with sinners. He died a sinner's death. You know, in the Old Testament, God instituted uh, an entire system of sacrifices in Israel. You know, in all, as, as you read the Old Testament, you read about priests and sacrifices and the death of animals and all this was meant to teach us that God is the one who provides for us forgiveness through the death of a sacrifice 
God provides forgiveness through the death of a sacrifice. Now, all the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, they, they all pointed forward to this ultimate once-for-all sacrifice that God Himself would provide. His very Son, Jesus Himself. You know, this is the reason why John, when you read this passage, John highlights this particular key detail about Jesus' death. And he says, none of Jesus' bones were broken. Verse 36, you know, none of Jesus' bones were broken. This is a bit unusual because you know, normally when the victims hung on the cross, you know, Romans would leave them there for as long as it took for them to die. You know, hours, maybe days. But the, the Jewish religious leaders were not happy that you had men hanging on the cross over the Sabbath. So what did they do? They, they came to the Roman leaders and said, hey, you know, we want to keep our Sabbath, so why don't you hasten the death of these crucified victims? So what did the Romans do? To hasten death, they would come with a, a heavy iron mallet, hammer. And they would take this iron mallet and they would smash the legs of the people hanging on the cross. Why, why, why did they do that? Because once your legs are broken, you can't push yourself up anymore to breathe. Your, your chest cavity kind of shrinks because you can't open your chest anymore. And imagine if you can't open your chest in that position, you, you suffocate and die pretty quickly. So that was what the Romans did to, to hasten the death of crucified victims. So they did that for the two other men on Jesus' left and right. They came, broke their legs, and then they soon died. But when the soldiers came to Jesus, surprise, surprise, he was already dead. So the, the, the soldiers didn't have to break his legs. In fulfillment of scripture, none of his bones were broken. You know, when we hear about that, it, it actually recalls in our minds some, some events in the Old Testament. The biggest rescue in the Old Testament was Israel's exodus from Egypt how God intervened, he saved his, the Israelites in Egypt and brought them out of Egypt. And right before he brought them out, what did he do? He told the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb, a Passover lamb. And he expressly told the Israelites, don't break the bones of this Passover lamb. Don't break the bones. Just kill it and eat it, but don't break the bones. So what did they do with this lamb? They would sacrifice the lamb, eat it, and then take the blood of the lamb and apply it to the doorposts of their houses, all the Israelite homes in the land of Egypt. And when God came in judgment across the land of Egypt, the judgment of God passed over all the homes that were covered by the blood of the lamb. Here in John 19, we have a rescue that's even greater than the exodus of Israel from Egypt, a far greater exodus. The exodus of God's people away from captivity to sin and death through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. His blood covers all who put their faith in him so that the wrath of God passes over those who trust him. And instead of judgment, we receive forgiveness, redemption, freedom. You know, some of you may have read the papers recently and, and you, know, you, hear, you heard about this man, this policeman in France called Arnaud Betam. Betam is remembered as a hero 
because in the recent hostage crisis in France, in the south of France, what did Betam do? He, he said to the terrorist who was holding a bunch of people hostage, he said, hey, I'm going to take their place. Right, so, so the terrorist agreed. Betam wi willingly put himself forward, took the place of all the hostages, and got killed as a result. He was shot three times, and he died of his wounds uh, soon after. So France is mourning a hero. And he died as a hero because he, he died as a sacrificial substitute, giving his own life so that others could go free. In a similar way, Jesus is our sub sacrificial substitute. He willingly offers his life so that we, sinners like us, can go free. He died the death that we should have died. He set us free from what was holding us captive, things that we could never free ourselves from. Sin, death, the condemnation of God. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we can say with confidence there is no condemnation because of what Christ has done. The death of Jesus also fulfills Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, as Sam read for us earlier. Zechariah 12, verse 10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps for a firstborn. Through the death of Jesus Christ, God has poured out on us his grace and mercy. The cross of Christ most clearly displays the amazing love of God for sinners like us. Oh, do you ever wonder if God cares? Do you, ever, do you ever ask the question, how do I know if God loves me? How do I know if God is real, if he's really looking out for me, if he really cares for me? How do I know? I mean, sure, you can look, for, maybe you can look at your circumstances to some extent, but here in Scripture, it's recorded for us the clearest evidence of God's love. It's, it's the death of his beloved son, as a sacrificial substitute on behalf of sinners like us. When he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, upon Jesus, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And we've all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, Zechariah goes on to say in chapter 13, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. As we've just sung, there is a fountain filled with blood. When you think about it, it's, it's quite a gruesome image. A fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, drawn from the beloved Son whom God has sent for us and for our salvation. And, and we sinners plunged beneath the flood, beneath that cleansing flood of Jesus' blood. We lose all our guilty stains. That, that my friends, is the, is the clearest evidence that God loves us. He's given us His beloved as a sacrifice. And John says when, when the soldiers pierced Jesus' side, what came out? Blood and water. 
interesting image, blood and water. I think they, they really represent Jesus' power to save. The blood represents Jesus' sacrificial death, which secures our forgiveness because He is the sacrifice. The, the water represents Jesus' power to make us clean, the, the cleansing power of His life-giving Spirit whom He gives on all who believe in Him. His Spirit changes us, brings us from darkness to light, the water and the blood. Now, I love this old song, Rock of Ages. Some of you may know this old hymn. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. Jesus' water, the, the water and the blood that flowed from his side, I mean, represent his cleansing and saving power, saving us from the guilt of our sin, breaking the power of sin in our lives, giving us new lives, cleansing us from within. None of the circumstances of Jesus' death was accidental or, coinciden or coincidental. Ev every little detail that we read about in John 19, from the soldiers casting lots for Jesus' clothes to Jesus being given sour wine to drink, you know, none of these details were coincidental. They, they all work together to fulfill God's word, to, to fulfill God's plan. In fact, John tells us Jesus didn't die because his life was taken from him. Not really. Jesus willingly laid down his life in order to accomplish God's plan to save. He gave up his spirit. That's why he said it is finished. Mission accomplished. I've done all that the Father has called me to do. It is done. It's finished. There is no need for us to add to the finished work of Christ. There's no need for you and me to try to work for our salvation. Why? Because it is finished. Our sins are paid for. Our lives are made new entirely by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That, that my friends, is the good news of Christianity. That's the good news of Good Friday, the gospel. Jesus was lifted up to draw us to himself. Second point. This amazing news of the cross calls for a response from us. The cross of Christ confounds all of our worldly expectations. Jesus was lifted up on the cross like a common criminal. But in fact, that was the very event that revealed his glory. Out of his dishonor, came honor. Out of his death, came life. Out of judgment, came salvation. At the moment of Jesus' greatest weakness and humiliation, it's the very moment of his greatest triumph, of his exaltation. The cross was Jesus' coronation as the true king. Now, Pilate's sign in verse 21, now Pilate intended for the sign to be sarcastic. Right? You know, this is the king of the Jews. You know, he, he intended the sign to be uh, indictment of the Jews, sort of mocking them. But Pilate's sign spoke better than he realized. You know, the sign was written in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Aramaic, the language of the Jews. Latin, the language of the Romans. Greek, the language of the wider 
Gentile world. And this sign was meant to be read by all of, by all people, by the world at that time. In fact, we can even think about the languages as you know, the language of religion, the Jews, the language of politics, Latin, the language of economics and culture, Greek. This sign spoke much better than Pilate realized. This sign declared that Jesus is the king of the Jews, and not just king of the Jews, but God's chosen king to rule over all peoples and nations. This sign was meant to be read by all, because Jesus is king of all. And King Jesus rules over all because he has come to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. As Jesus said in John 12, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And the Apostle John has written these things down for us so that we may also believe. Verse 35, that is the point of this passage, that we may believe in Jesus Christ. So we don't, re- we don't gather to remember the cross as an interesting relic of history, but we gather to remember the cross because it is still 2,000 years after the fact. It is still God's power to save. How then should we respond to this king? How should we respond? We mourn. We grieve over the sinfulness of our sin that nailed the eternal Son of God to the cross. Friends, do we realize that it was our sins that killed the Son of God? Just, just think about that for a moment. Your sin, my sin, we killed the eternal Son of God. We mourn and grieve over the sinfulness of sin. And because we mourn for our sin, we repent and turn away from anything that grieves Christ. We humble ourselves. We, we come to God empty-handed and we say to God, have mercy. Have mercy. I, I'm, I'm guilty as charged. I'm the one who killed your son. Have mercy. We humble ourselves before a holy God who lovingly and graciously gave his beloved son for us. We mourn, we trust. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one is able to come to God the Father except through his son. And the amazing good news of the gospel is that this Jesus freely offers us himself. He offers us life in him. Will we not trust him? Will we not trust him to save us? Will we not trust him to rule over us as our king? We mourn, we trust, we worship. Jesus Christ, the servant king, took up the cross and he calls us to worship him by denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him. And King Jesus calls us to glorify him by living like him and making him known in a world that is in desperate need of Christ. He is the light of the world and he calls us to worship him, to to give ourselves unreservedly to him and to live for him. Last slide. 
So some of you may have seen this. This is a Lactomenos graffito from around the second century. This is possibly one of the earliest images of the crucifixion that historians have come across. It shows a man on the left worshipping, you know, he has his hand up. He's probably worshipping a crucified man with the head of a donkey. And the caption reads, you know, there's some Greek letters kind of scrawled on the side. The caption reads, Alexamenos, that's the man with his hand up. Alexamenos worships his God. As you can tell, this is not a complimentary picture of Christians. This is not a complimentary picture of Christ. This picture mocks Christians for worshipping the one who was crucified. A crucified saviour with the head of a donkey. Friends, we are called to follow a crucified Christ. You know, make, make no, you know, don't be deceived. Christianity is offensive because we're called to follow a crucified Christ. You know, it's like saying we worship someone who got electrocuted on an electric chair. We worship someone who was hung from a gallows and who died that way. It's offensive. It is deeply offensive to the world's sensibilities. We worship a crucified Christ. And to follow Jesus, we must be crucified along with him. He calls us to die to ourselves, to put to death anything that opposes Christ, to put to death any pride or, or sense of entitlement or, or self-righteousness, any sense of religious superiority, Jesus calls us to put all that to death. Be crucified with him. He calls us to die to ourselves, die to our self-centered ambitions, our self-centered pleasures, our self-centered desires, our self-centered motivations, our self-centered preferences, self-centered opinions. Jesus calls us to identify with him who suffered for the glory of God, to share in his sufferings so that we might become like him in his death, like Lectomenos, who worshipped a crucified Christ. Hebrews 13 says to us, Jesus also suffered outside the gates in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us Go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Now, as we remember the death of Christ, we remember what it cost him to save us. We also remember what it costs us to follow him. Our salvation is free, but it is not cheap. You know, so, friends, why would, why would we still want to follow Jesus? You know, maybe I've not done a very good job kind of selling this to you. But why, why would we still want to follow Jesus? Listen again to Hebrews. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the shame. 
donkey on the cross. He counted it as he counted it as nothing for the eternal joy, the weight of glory that awaited him at the right hand of the Father. This, my friends, is why we identify with Christ, why we crucify ourselves with him, and why we follow him. What a joy set before us. Now the darkness of death doesn't get the final word. Jesus looked forward to the joy and light of resurrection life. Now, if we are in Christ, we shall also be glorified with him. So let's worship Jesus by following him through the cross and on to glory. The reason why Good Friday is good is because of Easter Sunday. Let's not forget that. As Psalms, Psalm 30 puts it so beautifully, weeping may, and may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Let's pray together. give you thanks and praise for the gift of your eternal son. Father, we thank you for Jesus who suffered for us so that we might receive life, so that we might be forgiven. And Father, we come to you now. We, we come to you as a needy people. We come to you conscious of how our sins have nailed your son to the cross. And Father, we pray that you will break our hearts. Father, we pray that you will humble us. May your spirit do what your spirit is called to do and convict us of sin and convict us of righteousness. Father, we pray even now that your spirit would move powerfully in us. Father, help us to behold Christ. Help us to see our need for him. And Father, we do plead with you that you would draw us to your son. Father, we pray that you would Turn us away from our sin. Turn us away from our self-centeredness. Turn us away from our pride. Humble us before you. Humble us before Christ that we would trust him. That we would mourn and repent of how we've grieved your son. And Father, help us to worship you. Help us to give ourselves to him unreservedly, gladly, knowing that though weeping may tarry for the night, joy comes Father, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus that we also, that the joy set before us may also endure the cross. That we would despise the shame and live for him shining as lights in a dark world. And Father, we pray that you strengthen us. Help us for the sake of your son. We pray this in his name.